him the dead. And in the Christian calendar, in our scriptures, we see now Jesus has a season where he journeys as the resurrected Christ with his followers until he ascends to heaven and then sends out his Holy Spirit. So we sit in the season of Jesus present with us, resurrected. And the hope of this series is that we would see that the resurrection wasn't just this moment of Jesus rising from the dead and that's great, but that there's a sense of that changed things. Moving forward, everything is different. That Jesus in his resurrection was raised into new life and is that first fruit, that glimpse of what we all hope for at the end, where everything will be renewed, everything will be made new, that ultimately we will all be resurrected. We will be resurrected at the end. And Jesus is that first glimpse. And in Scripture it talks, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, we are a new creation. That sense of we get to participate, not just as like Jesus' resurrection change our mind, our ideas, but actually we want to talk about this is a whole of life, this is embodied renewal, that everything can be made new, that we get to participate now in the renewal work God is doing, that we look forward expectantly to when everything is made right at the end, but we get to see and participate in glimpses of God's goodness now. So this series we want to look at in this Easter side season, embodying renewal. And this morning I want to start in a passage from John's Gospel. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd invite you to open up to John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail in his hand, unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this morning I want to start this Eastertide sermon series embodying renewal with actually that this is the traditional passage that is read the week after Resurrection Sunday. And the reason for that is the event happens in John's Gospel the week after. That is eight days. This is the passage that we find ourselves in. And we get this story of Thomas that most of us would know as his defining characteristic is that he's known as doubting. But Thomas has actually journeyed with Jesus through his ministry, that he has been one of Jesus' disciples, one who has given up his career, left his family to go follow this person of Jesus. And unfortunately, he has missed out on this sighting of Jesus 
when we start our story this morning. The sense that Easter Sunday, the other 10 remaining disciples get to witness, get to meet Jesus in his resurrected body. As we talked about last week, this Jesus that is completely new, the sense that the disciples on the road to Emmaus don't even recognize him, that is new creation, there's something that is profoundly new about him and the disciples get to meet him and it is powerful for them and Thomas isn't there. And I get, as I read the story, as I sit with Thomas's experience, I think about, I don't know if you've ever had one of these experiences where you've had a family get together, a friends get together, there's been an event on and you've chosen, I think I'm going to sit this one out team. I'm going to take a pass. And then the thing happens and it's suddenly, something unexpected happens and this, it becomes the group story and you've missed out, you're out of the loop. I don't know if you've ever had, I've had a few of these. And I feel like this story is like the ultimate tale of like, that would just trigger a sense of fear of missing out for your life moving forward. Like it's just this experience, like when you read this story, the disciples are gathered in fear in a locked room. They're hiding away in fear. I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of event I would be running to go to. Like, I get why Thomas wasn't there. Be like, I'm going to give that a pass, guys. You're going to all hide away, locked away. I'll miss that. And he misses the resurrected Jesus show up. Like, imagine that. That's what you miss out on. Surely that's the greatest thing to miss. Surely for the rest, we don't get the full extent detail of Thomas's life. But you can imagine he's not turning down many invites for the rest of his life. He is showing up to everything. And this is the story that we get here, that we get this doubting Thomas. This Thomas who, like the rest of the disciples, felt like he lost everything on Good Friday. That, like I said, he gave up his career, he would have left his family behind to go follow this rabbi, this person he thought was the Messiah. I imagine he got all these dreams, these visions of like, I get to be a part of this change. God is going to bring change through this Messiah to the religious world, to the political world. He's going to free us from under the Roman rule. Change is coming. And then there was powers he was meant to overturn ended up killing him. That Thomas would have lost dreams, lost his, even his sense of religion, but he also lost a f- close friend and mentor. And I think as we sit with Thomas's experience, Thomas's story, I think it can speak to us and our experiences when we've had those moments in our lives that feel like they shake everything feel like they cast into question the things that we've believed. That it might not even just be questions around, is God a good God? But even questions, is there a God at all? And in Thomas, we get a story of a man who not, that allows us to not just normalize doubt in Christ's disciples, in Christ's people, in the body of Christ, but also I think he might be our guide on how, what we do with our doubt, how we handle it individually with our own personal doubt, but as a community of Christ followers, what we do with doubt in our midst. And I want Thomas to be 
somewhat our guide this morning. And I think it's important to talk about doubt because over the past few years, doubt has been something that's been really at the surface of Christian culture. You may not better, as this term that Hannah mentioned, of deconstruction, of deconstructing our faith, of actually questioning everything and pulling it down. And I think it's important to talk about it in a bigger cultural historical perspective as well that I want to go through briefly. Because I think actually the story of doubt is a story that's particularly linked with the story of modern Western thought. That as all of us exist in the West for good or for bad, and there's a story that's woven through where doubt is fundamental to how we understand ourselves. And one of the early parts that kind of set modernity, how we understand what it means to be modern humans going, is the man Rene Descartes. And most of us will know his famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. And that phrase came out of a man in a culture where everything was up for grabs. The sense of like questioning what is good, what is true, what is reality. And if you've read Descartes, his book explores, man, questioning everything. How can we know if anything's true? How do I know that I'm not just a brain in a vat having thoughts and this is, you're all an illusion? Or how do I know that there's not demons tricking me into what's happening in the world? How do I, can I know anything? And this is a question that he asked. And what he came down to, I think is important, this statement, I think, therefore I am, which is actually better understood as, I doubt, therefore there's a doubter. I, have, I question everything's existence, but if I can question, if there are questions being asked, there must be a questioner. If there's doubt had, there must be a doubter. So the fundamental thing about an early modern Western person is this, I doubt everything but I know I exist. I am the key and I doubt everything else. And believe it or not, this came actually from a man who was, the church asked him, the church participated in his work because they were in this world, it was like, yeah, everything is good, we need something to anchor ourselves. So pretty early in Descartes' work, he goes from I think, therefore I am, to kind of getting a proof that God exists. But that's the secondary thing. The primary thing is I doubt, therefore is a, there is a doubter. And out of that, the next few centuries are grappling with doubt as the default, but there's a doubter and what that means. To question everything, but we've got this core thing and maybe we can build some, construct some things around that. Like Descartes managed to construct that maybe there's a God. It doesn't really look anything like the God of the Holy Scriptures. It's kind of this abstract God, but we can get to that. And constructing these worldviews, ultimately these politics, out of like, what does it mean for me to question and doubt and then build upon that. And it built over centuries this worldview based on this core logical truth. And then for various reasons, in the 20th century, it kind of all came crumbling back down again. 
the main cause being the two world wars. That humanity from Western humanity, from that perspective, said, Let, this is how we'll now live in the world based on that assumption, and thought we were doing pretty well for ourselves. We were headed, like we were making progress, we were getting somewhere, we were getting more civilized, we were exporting how we thought about the world to other places. And it hits this moment in the 21st, in the 20th century of just utter chaos and evil in the first two, in the two world wars. This moment that brought down any sense of grasping for reality and truth that we had figured out. And not just at like a philosophical, theological level, but at a deeply personal, community, family level as well. Like if you're grappling with what's true and what's real and doubting, and then you lose your father or your brother or your son to the war, just the profound effect that has on you. Like there's a reason, if you drive through New Zealand, no matter how small the township is, it may just be a cross section of two roads, there'll be a war memorial with the people who passed away. And just the profound impact that had on Western civilization of again, throwing us back into this like, man, we don't know what's true, what's good, we did our best, and we stuff, and through the 60s and 70s, essentially bringing up this idea of post-modernity of like, let's just, let's just be the default, question everything. Nothing can be known, nothing can be certain. Questioning is back as the complete default. Questioning has high value. It's to be regarded. Doubt is like the cultural virtue. And I think it's important to set a bit of a wider cultural perspective because when we come to our own doubts, when stuff is in our mind and our hearts in turmoil, I think it actually can be compounded by the cultural context that we're in. Leslie Newbigin talks about, there was, in his view, he kind of pulls at both ends. He says, doubt in the Christian world, for the liberal or the progressive doubt, is this virtue to be pursued? If you haven't got to doubt, you're pretty immature and you're probably unintelligent. Doubt is where you should be and doubt is where you should stay. But the conservative or the other end of the spectrum is doubt is seen as the sin, this thing to be avoided and hidden and expelled as quickly as possible. Those are the options. But instead, I think Thomas starts to paint this picture of what if doubt is a normal part of our discipleship to Christ? That there'll be like every description of spiritual development, any good description talks about actually we have this period where we construct our faith. And it's pretty normal to get to a stage where we start to raise some questions. Have I constructed this well? I love this quote by um, Oswald Chambers and he says this around doubt. Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. And there's this like normalizing of like, oh, deconstructing till nothing's left I think can be unhelpful, but what would it look like to have doubt as a normal part of our Christian community? Because I think it offers opportunities for us to distinguish what are those actually core beliefs? 
What are those secondary things? What are those tertiary things? And what's just actually taste and preference? Deconstruction and doubt offers us the opportunity to get back to a right order or a right priority. That sometimes we're not given the opportunity or you don't necessarily think is a good thing. Like, if you turn up to the well, we have an order of things that are important to us faith-wise and some things that are like, don't matter. If you've come into this place, you might think, oh, Jesus is pretty important, but the genre of worship music, that seems pretty important as well. And you can build this faith off these things that are actually secondary taste, preference, don't matter. And deconstruction and doubt, I think, offers the opportunity to re-examine our lives and our faith. And this has actually been true of the church for a long time. Even in the church's first beginnings, like the book of Galatians that Paul writes is a very quick like, hey guys, you've taken the gospel and you've already constructed something that's unhelpful around it. Like pretty quickly being like, let's get back to what this is actually about. Let's not add things because sometimes they actually take away and distort the good news. For the tradition that we're in, this is what the Reformation was about. This period where Martin Luther, all intents, he was keen to stay as a Catholic but realized, hey, Catholic Church has added some things, extra requirements. They've constructed something around the gospel that I don't think is healthy, helpful, or actually orthodox belief. So it was this invitation of like, let's go back and examine what's actually important. Even in the 20th century, that's kind of the roots of Pentecostalism. The Pentecostal church was, in some sort, a root of people, let's open our Bible, see how the early church functioned. This doesn't reflect how our churches function. Maybe we should imitate this. Maybe we should deconstruct how we see church and construct it more on the early church than what's around us. That this is a pattern that the church has done. But the problem is that this idea of deconstruction is not necessarily a neutral term culturally. That the default is when there's a cultural language of always be deconstructing, always be pulling down, always like the less you can get to the better. I think that's unhelpful. There is, doubt is valuable, but there's a sense of using it and working through it as a church community. That often I've seen with those who have deconstructed faith have been willing to offer high criticism of church, has its function, theology, but then have very quickly and uncritically being able just adopted other cultural practices. And I think for us as followers of Christ, when we come to the questions of doubt, and deconstruction. I think there's something we agree with with those who question and default to doubt is that we too have a skepticism. As Clint talked about last week, our book talks of one, our book, Scripture, speaks of us as humanity as fallen, as broken, as sinful, as deceived right from the start in every area of our life. Our mind, our heart, our emotions at every level 
to the core. We have reason to be sceptical. But where we differ is the core truth that we end up building upon. Unlike Descartes, we can't even trust our reason and the core point he gets to. What our story tells us is one of a people who know everything and anything that we can know we only know because God reveals it to us, God makes it known to us. It is only in and through his grace that we may know anything. And in the midst of this revelation, we get the most beautiful moment. We get what happened, we celebrated last weekend, the beauty of it. That while we may talk about the cross and the resurrection and what they achieve, I think one of the beautiful things they show us is who God is. Like if you want to understand who the God, the creator of this universe is, sit with the cross and the resurrection, that will show you who God is. And this morning, I want to sit with Thomas as he wrestles with this, as he sits with his doubt, and how he processes through it. In verse 26, as our story goes, a week later, after the resurrection, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, not missing out this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And I love this because Thomas is unlike how I would react to these situations. When doubt comes, when it feels like I've missed out, probably choose to isolate even more. The other 10 believe this one thing, I feel different, I'm going to opt out. Yet she's, uh, Thomas chooses to stay and engage with others. He was doubting and skeptic, but he's stuck in the midst of it. And for, uh, amongst us, I know there will be some of us who have deep questions and doubts. And it can feel sometimes like it's with Thomas. I'm the only one of the group who has questions. I feel distant. I feel separate. I feel like I can't belong. And I love this, how Matthew tells the story at the end of Jesus' ministry. From a famous, it's kind of the intro to the famous passage where Jesus sends out in the Great Commission his disciples. And bring up the passage. And this is how it starts. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That Jesus, as he sends out his disciples, go and proclaim the good news of my resurrection, death and resurrection, some of his disciples doubted. That even in the midst of that, there was some of them who questioned, who challenged, yet still participated and the work that what God was wanting to do in his church. And we've got heaps of reasons for doubt. It might be the philosophical, the theological, you've just got questions you want to get answered. Maybe it's the deeply personal of like, stuff's happened to me and I just can't make sense of it with God. I've got doubts, I've got questions. And the challenge I think that Thomas invites us into is to stay engaged and I think one of the challenges particularly for us in this postmodern world is the postmodern world is default to the 
You question everything, so the way to get any meaning is the individual isolates themselves and picks and chooses what they want and what they like. And I think we can do that with church as well, or what church we join, or what kind of theology we buy into, the sense of like, I, my role is to pick and choose, that the authority ultimately lies with me, the individual. And the challenge is actually that's not how it works. The invitation is to stay engaged. Here we talk about our values, open and honest. And what I love about these values is they kind of hold two things. I think there's two beautiful parts of this that we sometimes maybe miss. I think they can come across like the same idea just twice. But the, the passage when we talk about this that's referring to is from the church, early church in Acts that says, the believers had everything in common, that we actually be a church community there to honest what's going on, but the openness isn't just the same as honesty. There's also a sense of like our lives are open. We're with each other, sharing, in common, doing this together. That's how we do things. And that's what we're doing. For those of us who are doubting, we're invited in, and for those of us who aren't, the invitation is, will we welcome those with doubts? Will we do it in a way where we don't need to be anxious to give the perfect answer? Because in the story of Thomas, the other disciples can happily say, Jesus is risen, we've seen him. And leave it at that, and leave Jesus to do the work. God does the work of revealing and convincing Thomas. But I think the other reason that we can have for doubt is the sense of we lose the following of Jesus and then the doubts come. Actually, when I've known people who have given up their faith, someone once asked me, so they, they've come up with these hard questions giving up their faith. When did they stop praying? When did they stop reading their Bible? And often it's like three months or six months or nine months before. And it's not about we have to do things to get God, but it's like, oh, when did they choose to not receive God's grace anymore, God's goodness, God's revelation? When did they step away? When did their faith become less about a following of Christ and more kind of the sitting back? Someone I was reading this week worded it fantastically around this question of, a generation of doubt and deconstruction around the sense of like actually being part of a community following Christ, he said. The young have not been lured away by evil. No, it's by brunch. This idea that it's actually often not this big evil other thing. It's just this nice thing that means we kind of step out of the community and its rhythms and its practices and its people for things that might be nice but continued practice of another way will lead us to another God that isn't the resurrected saviour not that those things are like brunch is fine and, but like that sense of like oh are you choosing to step outside of God's community, God's practices where we encounter his goodness and his grace and if you have a pattern of that you're probably going to end up in a place of doubt And then we get, as the story continues, we get Jesus show up and he says this to Thomas. He said to Thomas, put your finger here, 
See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Leslie Newbegin talks about how in the West we particularly can have a Greek worldview that distinguishes faith or belief or ideas from the physical world or action. That theory and practice can be separated that the mental and the physical world can be distinguished. And I don't think Jesus lets us out like that. In Job's, in the story of Job in Scripture, we get someone who experienced profound tragedy, lost his family, lost his livelihood, and asked all these questions, went to a place of like, God, why are you doing this? What's happening? And do you know where the story ends? God doesn't answer any of his questions. But God shows up. God turns up. And that's what happens with Thomas. Jesus shows up, invites Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believing. I think the challenge for us in doubt is so easily to slip into the theoretical and the ideas and questions that we want answered And I think the invitation Jesus offers is not an abstract, is not an idea, but he offers himself, the resurrected Christ. Not as this God who's just a generic God as love, but love represented as God embodied in a Jewish man. Jesus coming as a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago, died, and then three days later came back to life. That's the God we believe in this embodied faith and that this belief is again not just an idea but it changes our lives changes our thoughts but it changes everything that as in second Corinthians Jesus is a new creation and if we are in him we are also a new creation we may embody the renewal that Jesus has brought And he finishes with these words, which I found quite hard to read, of this section, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting. Of like, and I wonder this morning if there's some of us that God might say, I've shown up, I've worked. Have you noticed? Are you willing to follow? Everything might not line up perfectly yet but will you follow with what I've given you that in our story the doubter gets an encounter with the risen Christ and do you know what Thomas's response is Thomas's response the doubting disciple the one who's cast with that for the rest of his life into eternity is Thomas says these words my Lord and my God. He encounters the risen Christ and says, my Lord and my God. These, this is the most powerful, the highest view of Jesus that's confessed in the Gospels. Other people call him Messiah, other people call him Savior. Thomas recognizes him as Lord and God. Thomas has been, as he's sat, as he hasn't run away, 
as he sat with his doubt, brought it to Jesus, brought it to his community, Jesus has met him and said, and this has been his response, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus finishes this passage with these words. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And I think this speaks to all of us. Like, I'm making this assumption. None of us, making an assumption, none of us have met the resurrected Christ in his physical form. I'm assuming that. So we're included in this statement. We are those ones who have believed and we have not yet seen. We're blessed as his followers. Ones who have said, there's questions, there's doubts, I can't prove everything perfectly, but man, I know enough about the risen Christ and his life and renewal and hope that man, I'm gonna follow, I'm gonna believe, I'm gonna chase after that. And so this morning, I'll invite us as the well. This is our church community. There will be some among us who have deep questions and doubts around God, around faith. The invitation is please stay in community. Ask those questions. Wrestle that stuff out. And we as a community, may we be a place where we are open and honest welcoming each person into our lives and having those conversations. That though, as Thomas had courage to speak, even though the rest of the 10 were on the same page, we would create environments where we could have those conversations too. That the one and the 11 wouldn't have to keep quiet with the hope that like Jesus, we all get, like Thomas and the disciples, we all get to meet the risen Jesus together.